RTHK Radio 3. So we'll be opening the auction for tomorrow morning at 8.25 and it will go on for exactly 24 hours. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Stay tuned for uh, Back Chat. That's coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast is going to be cloudy, one or two rain patches. The temperatures are going to fall appreciably to about a minimum of 15 degrees at night, a couple of degrees lower even in the new territories. And that's going to continue over the next couple of days. And then they will rise progressively over the weekend. It's 25 degrees right now, 85% relative humidity. Just gone 8.30. Here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. The nation's latest manned space mission has blasted off with three Taikonauts bound for the Tiangong space station. Erin Tam reports. Five, four, three, two, one, ignition. The Shenzhou 15 craft launched from the Jiuquan Satellite Launch Center in the northwest of the country after a sea-off ceremony for the three Taikonauts was held. On board were Taikonauts Fei Junlong, Deng Chengming, and Zhang Lu, with Fei as the commander. The space station will be handed over to them within a week by the three Taikonauts who arrived at the station in early June. Police have launched a murder investigation after a 64-year-old man was found fatally stabbed in a pool of his own blood at a building in Mong Kok. Steve Dunthorne reports. Police had been called to Hoifu Court shortly after 6 o'clock after being alerted by neighbours to someone calling for help. They found the victim in a corridor with what are thought to be chop wounds to his neck, head and hand. Ambulance crews rushed the man to Kwangwa Hospital where he was declared dead a short time later. Police say a 51-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of murder. He was found on a window ledge with a bottle of corrosive liquid and injuries to his arms. He was taken, conscious, to Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Police say the suspect is being detained for inquiries. The Moncock District Crime Squad is investigating. A group working with grassroots families says tenants of the SAR's First Light public housing flats might need help with transport after the government earmarked four sites in the new territories. Officials hope to have 1,000 of the prefabricated short-term homes ready in the 2024-25 financial year and are asking LegCo for $27 billion in funding. It's hoped the homes will allow people waiting for permanent public housing to move out of subdivided flats. But the Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organisation, Silai San, says many residents are settled in urban areas. I think the location is quite, it's a bit far compared to those divided flat tenants. Most of them, they may be more in Kowloon side or uh, urban area. So they will expect urban area, public housing rather than uh, remote area. So I think the government, they will need to assist them for their uh, transportation, go to work or go to school. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong. And I'm Andrew Work. On today's program, we're looking at transitional housing project in Yunlong that appears to be falling flat. Nearly half of the units at a housing project run by Hong Kong Shinkong Hui Welfare Council are still vacant after tenants started moving in six months ago. The welfare group expressed hope that the government would do more to promote the flats. But why are people not taking advantage of the new project, given Hong Kong's acute housing shortage? Is it about the lack of promotion, the location, or something else? And after 9.15, does size matter? Yes, it does, when it comes to diamond engagement rings, according to a new survey. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk. Or give us a call at 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have in our studio Dr. Ma Hock Cheung, the CEO of Pokoi Hospital Board Office. And on the line, we have Jenny Cho from the Society for Community Organization, who runs the Yingwa Street Transitional Housing Project in Shamshui Po, and Anthony Wong, the Business Director of the Hong Kong Council of Social Service. Good morning to all of you, and uh, thanks for coming on our program. Um, let's start with you, Dr. Ma. Um, how would you describe the uh, overall demand for transitional housing at, at the moment? Uh, I would say that it is a bit uneven. Uh, if it is somewhat, something located, say, downtown, I suppose the demand would be very strong. Yeah. Because if it is, say, in you know, a very remote rural area in the new territories, then, well, unless uh, we are talking about the one or two people uh, units, which we have uh, quite a, a strong demand as well. Uh, well, for family-sized units, the demand is not that as we expected. Yeah, so uh, we also have some problem in recruiting uh, adequate uh, uh, families to uh, live in our, our units. All right. Mr. Wong, do you share that assessment? The, if you look at the number of uh, people living in subdivided units, I think the number, there's a, everybody understand that there is a substantial uh, number of people living in subdivided units, and they are supposed to be the, the people who are in need of this kind of housing. But I think, uh, for one thing, uh, the area of uh, where these housing are located is one problem. But another problem, I, I suspect, is the fact that a lot of uh, people living in uh, subdivided unit or people live uh, uh, grassroots uh, people, they may not be really um, uh, informed about not just the transition housing, but a lot of different kind of services and you know assistance program. Uh, we have conduct quite a lot of uh, survey uh, on people, for example, living in subdivided unit. They may not have heard about some assistance programs that are helping them. I suspect that if you ask anybody in your circle whether they know that there is, there's a housing project in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 you know, in, in this area or that area, I suspect that even among the, within the circle or people providing this, uh, uh, this kind of housing may not be fully informed, not mentioning those people who are really living in, you know, Subdivided units. I think that there is a lot more to do to promote uh, and you know to get them informed about this uh, provision. And of course, uh, I truly agree that uh, there should be you know some more uh, you know assistance and you know facilities 
in terms of how you you know incentivize people uh, who may be hes- who, who may hesitate to move into this kind of area. But if you provide more support and assistance and facilities, I think that uh, in view of the uh, low rent, I think a lot of people would consider to go to those areas. All right. So, so Dr. Ma, just now, Mr. Wong, he, he talked about uh, the uh, uh, maybe some people are not very well informed about the facilities at these uh, transitional housing projects. And, and you mentioned uh, uneven demand for these housing projects. Um, so, so would you say that you're not that surprised about uh, um, the number of flats left vacant at the uh, United Court Transitional Housing Project in Yunlong? Well, if uh, we are talking about the uh, so-called promulgation of the whole project to uh, those uh, needy families, I'm not sure if there's actually uh, such a lack of uh, information to them. We have tried uh, every means to reach them uh, by well contacting uh, those uh, uh, NGOs who serve them uh, locally. And we have also uh, spent a lot of money in uh, promoting uh, our, our, our villages to them. Um, also, I think there will be worse of mouth because uh, there are also some families who have moved in and they are quite happy. They found the environment, the facilities are very, very bad, much better than what they had used to have. So uh, I would not say that it is the main cause why uh, people are hesitant uh, in moving in from the downtown area to Yunlong, say, Baheng or Yintong Samchun. I think more likely it's because uh, those remote areas, they are very concerned about their, their children's uh, schooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cannot uh, find good uh, schools there. And after all, the transition housing is just for a couple of years or maybe times two. So uh, they will say, oh, if I change the school now. But then whenever well, the housing authority offered me a true, uh, this kind of low price housing, uh, then, then I have to change the school again. So it's a very, very troublesome. Yeah. So, so many of them, well, I'm talking about those families with children, they are very hesitant in moving in into, say, Yunlong or even more remote areas. Right. I, I have a Facebook message here from Eileen, and uh, she says that maybe it's just uh, too far from their work, perhaps. Um, let's go to Ms. Troy. Good morning, Ms. Troy. When we, when we look at uh, um, the, uh, uh, these uh, transitional housings that are, are not uh, too popular uh, for, for some people, it, it, do you think it's uh, mainly because it's Sorry, too far? I beg your pardon, because I'm quite gap here. Hi. Hello, can you hear me? Oh, yes. Ms. Yes. Cho, when we talk about uh, the demand for these transitional housing, uh, just now um, Dr. Ma says it's kind of uneven. Um, do you think it's mainly to do with the location of these transitional housing projects, or are some of them just too far? Um, I would say uh, because no matter where our, our residents are living at now, they do not prefer to make dramatical changes on their present life to acquire for a public, uh, for, to acquire a temporary housing. So I would say because all of them understand understand their well they cannot afford the future rent or to rent a similar place that they do after two to three years. So I think the location is very important and the length of, of tenure uh, is also very important for them. If uh, any one of the project could uh, guarantee a longer period of tenure, they may change their mind. Yeah, but at that point, it's not transitional, is it? I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about this. If, if 
I mean, I have a question about this whole concept of transitional because right. if you are transitioning, theoretically, there's a plan for you to get into a more permanent housing situation where you're paying rent, which would suggest that you have a job or a source of income. Yeah. But I mean, you know, when I hear um, Dr. Ma say, well, they'll come for a couple of years or maybe two times that. Um, it sounds like if people like village living, they're going to go out there and never leave. And if they want to stay close to a job that would give them an income so they could start paying rent, then they're not going to want to go live in a village where they have a tough time getting to a job. I mean, is there is there a mismatch mm. there? I mean, it, it sounds like the transitional is not going to, they're not going to transition out. Like Dr. Ma, like how are you going to, how are you, you talking well, about? Obviously, I think uh, the transitional housing concept it's actually transitional, yeah. So it is kind of a bridging over uh, 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 accommodation for those waiting for better accommodation offered by the public housing uh, uh, facilities. Uh, as far as the, the, the job is concerned, of course, we also, I know that even the Singkong Wei has been trying very hard to help people who have moved in to find jobs nearby. But of course, that would be, not be an easy uh, task. Mm. But of course, um, I, to my to my uh, experience, um, the job is not that uh, a major issue. I think the more the more important one is actually about the children's school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, say if, uh, say in the in, in my Kongha uh, 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 village, there are people who actually they they are taking jobs like taxi drivers, so they have no problem. They can go anywhere. Yeah. So uh, it is it's actually about the children. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and Dr. Ma, you just uh, mentioned uh, Kong Hawaii Village, your, your uh, transitional housing project there. It's also in Yunlong. I mean, what's the occupation uh, uh, occupancy rate uh, like there? Uh, we have the uh, phase one uh, project. Phase one uh, people have moved in for about six months and it's now about uh, 75 to 76% occupancy. It's a dynamic figure because people after they move in, they can also be offered a permanent housing, so they will move out. Yeah, so we are keeping in uh, continuing with our recruitment, but there are still people moving out. Yes, right. And earlier you did mention that you you also have uh, some difficulty uh, in re in uh, recruiting people to move into these transitional housing projects. What are the main difficulties? Is it uh, identifying the people, or what is it? It, it is the the family, the three to four people family units. Yeah. Uh, because uh, well, you, you you understand that a three to four uh, household size of people household would probably be a couple with two children. Yeah, mm. so uh, if they have children, then they have a lot to consider. Yeah, and also it would be difficult for them to travel a long distance back to their original school if they now move into say Yunlong Ba Heng. Okay, so that make them more hesitant. If it's for just for work, I think that would be okay. The, the adults they are willing to take a long distance travel because there's still bus, there's still minibus and MTR, they can, they can take that. Although, although that, that is getting more expensive now, cross-city travel. Yes, I mean, yes, yes. Indeed, indeed, I think the, 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 the transportation cost is getting more and more significant now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But Mr. Wong, you sounded like uh, you wanted to uh, um, add to this uh, discussion. Do, do you agree with uh, what uh, Dr. Ma is saying, that uh, it's all because of uh, education, like people want to move uh, to a location where they can find a good school? Yeah, this uh, this uh, uh, also very important factor when uh, a family consider whether they should they would like to relocate uh, uh, move to a remote area like in Long. But uh, I I understand that this is uh, one of the uh, biggest problem. Like uh, how, how you you have to change the school often. But on the other hand, I think that because as a matter of fact, we have already got those uh, projects. 
constructed. And there are out there, there are resources, housing resources. And the most important thing is that how we can, you know, uh, uh, enhance the recruitment and, 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 and uh, improve the situation now that all these housing, housing resources could be made uh, utilized by the uh, people who need it. And that's why I, what I'm trying to say, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't mean to argue against the fact that these areas, these housing projects are located in remote areas and people are hesitant to move in. But the fact that there are this kind of resources, maybe there should be. I'm not saying that the NGO is responsible for, uh, for, uh, for the uh, low utilization rate here. Because I understand that, like uh, Dr. Ma uh, and also uh, a lot of uh, stakeholders in the engine sector have been trying to, uh, you know, refer many uh, needy uh, households to move in. And we've been doing a lot to promote and recruit. I think that there should be much more effort uh, and resources put in, in uh, like driving a, a transitional housing campaign to... Uh, to really get people informed. I suspect that, because at the moment, we have uh, quite a bit of informal referral system among NGOs. And I think that uh, a lot of these users are actually the service users of the NGO. There are a lot of people who may not be hook up, uh, hooking up with the NGOs at the moment. So that these people may be more hidden in a way. So how do we reach out to these hidden people who may be in need of this housing? and who may not be informed about that there is something like transitional housing. And if we can take out this uh, uh, hidden demand, I think that there should still be more people willing to move in. And of course, if they are willing to move in, then we have to take care of how they're going to get a job, how they're going to uh, find a place for their children to to, to study. This is something that uh, some of the NGOs have already paid attention to, even helping those tenants to identify schools, place, and, and all that. I think that uh, uh, we have to think about more strategies to deal with that situation. Is, is this strictly for people that were in, uh, for example, subdivided flats? Or are you open to taking in people who were maybe uh, previously homeless, uh, who may uh, have other issues that come along with these, you know, with, yeah, to I, go into transition I think housing? different, uh, uh, we, uh, uh, subdivided units, I think the, uh, the most important uh, group, and everybody are concerned with them. But there are people who are living in other kind of uh, what we call indecent housing units, mm-hmm. so, or even homeless. We, we do have uh, tenants living in our transitional housing project. They, are, they were previously, they were homeless. So I think these people, you know, we should try our best to reach out to them. I just, I just want to make a point here, like, as I said previously, that you wouldn't understand that there are a lot of people living in the grassroots who are really uninformed about the community resources out there. Mm. And I think it's very important that we could we could do something to reach out to this hidden hidden household uh, and then and you know put these uh, housing resources in use. Do you have an estimate of the, like how? Um large this uh these this group of people is i mean this uh, group of people you're calling a hidden people hidden households how how large is this uh, group no I, I i have we haven't done a survey and research on uh, how many people are in, uninformed about transition housing but we have done survey about how people are uninformed about different kind of services and even like csa working uh working family allowance 
you will remember that when the time, when, by the time when the government uh, announced the uh, working family allowance, they were estimating that there will be like 200,000 uh, eligible households. But in the end, uh, like not even 50% of these uh, demands uh, uh, appear. So I think, uh, so quite a sizable uh, number of households who I think, uh, I, I, I guess that, 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 that there must be a lot of uh, households who are quite uninformed about different kind of resources, not just about transition housing. Right. Ms. Tro? Okay. Hello. Did you agree with uh, what uh, Mr. Wong is saying? I mean, do you think there is a big uh, group of people who are um, not well informed about uh, transitional housing? I think there is a there is quite a number of such types of people because uh, we did go to the cubicle and doing some promotion and introduction on transitional social housing. The majority of them do not have uh, updated information about it, and they don't know uh, how long is the tenure, how to plan the rent, something like that. It's very true. Uh, and, such, uh, and also, especially, we can see there is some elderly, they have no information about transitional social housing at all. Mm. I mean, is part, of the, the, uh, <clears throat> is a part of the problem linguistic of these people who only speak Putonghua or they speak another Chinese dialect and they come to Hong Kong? Or may, maybe they're refugees. I mean, are refugees allowed to access these programs? According to the, uh, the policy for the transitional housing, only uh, permanent Hong Kong residents can apply. And also there is a, a ratio uh, set by the government that 80% of our potential residents should be those waiting for the public housing. Mm. They will be on their waiting list for more than three years. 20% will be for those uh, well, various kinds of uh, very extremely poor uh, accommodations mm. uh, or even homelessness. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's still there's a, a ratio that um, the majority should be from the waiting list for public housing. Right. Okay. I assume you've already crossed that threshold. Yeah. Yeah. You're, so that that's you're kind of past that now. You've uh, we, your, we are we are negotiating with the government right. for a loosening uh, the stricter ratio, so okay. that we can accommodate more of those uh, needy ones who are not for various reasons not on the waiting list for public housing for more than three years. Okay, so refugees are out. People waiting for public housing are in. Yes. Uh, how about new immigrants from the mainland? What, well, if what they category have, do they fall in? If they have a, an ID card, yeah, yeah. then they, they, they can apply. Yes. Then they qualify, yeah. okay. All right, Mr. Wong, earlier you were uh, talking about uh, the need to maybe introduce a transitional housing campaign to uh, help uh, better inform people about these uh, sort of housing. Um, what role should the government play in this? Now, uh, I, I think at the moment, uh, the government is trying to uh, pay a lot of effort on the construction work because a lot of NGOs are quite, uh, you know, not, we're not expert in, you know, obviously we're not expert in constructing buildings, right? So the government has a lot of input on that and also identifies uh, places. But, but uh, in terms of services, like in terms of promotion, in terms of publicity about these things, maybe... Uh, in addition to the effort that NGO has made by themselves, I think the government may be, I don't know whether there should be some more, you know, higher level kind of a promotion campaign. I, uh, and, the, and at the time when we were doing relocation work for the Namchen 220 uh, project, uh, at the time, uh, because we have to relocate those tenants, we actually organized some, uh, you know, tour and visits for the tenants. And you know, try to 
give them a chance to have a look at those uh, units. Now, I think these people are already connected with our NGO, and we, we could, you know, you know, organizing more such kind of activities for people who are living in a subdivided unit or to other community networks, not just uh, those kept by the NGOs, but maybe other residents, organization, or, you know, district councillors, and network, all this kind of network, and then get them informed that there are some activities uh, or visits being organized by, you know, NGOs. And then perhaps if you, then, then you rely on the word of mouth among them, and then you can get the um, information, uh, you know, disseminated across people who are in need. I, I think, uh, frankly, uh, I understand that there is some news coverage, uh, particularly on TV, talking about Hong Samjun in Yunlong. I think before that, if you ask any community member, even around uh, those areas in Yunlong, I suspect that a lot of residents may not be informed about Hong Samjun. But now you have this you know, news coverage, and then you have this fact-check program already talking about it. Think about it. If you have more this kind of coverage and discussion and activity, talking, uh, you know, keep on talking about this uh, new project in different areas. I suspect that some people will still be very interested to at least look at it. And then if you tell them that, well, we're going to provide you with some other support facility, transportation, schooling, and even jobs, then I think, yeah, we we should be able to enhance the occupancy rate. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not, I'm saying that this will, this will, you know, resolve the problem completely, but at least we are try- making an effort to do, do more. I mean, Anthony Wong, you say you, you suspect, but I mean, when you do a tour, do you get, a, do, does anybody track the number of uh, percentage of uh, suitable applicants that you get after you conduct a tour? Oh, after, after, yes, this, after this is out in the yeah. news, do you get more applicants coming in? Does anybody track this? Yeah, uh, no, no, because uh, the, the number uh, that we have engaged, uh, because the tenants in living in Lancheng is uh, it's a very small number of uh, tenants. But there are tenants who, you know, really want to choose those areas. Once you, once they have, once they have a chance to have a look at those uh, units and have a look at the community that they are going to stay. All right, uh, Mr. Wong, we are going to have to take a break for the news very soon. But before that, I just want to get your view on light public housing. Um, the government has just unveiled the uh, first four sites for these types of uh, prefabricated housing in uh, Tun Moon, Fanling and Shengshui. Um, what do you think? I mean, what do you think? Uh, I mean, do you think it'll be popular among, um, I mean, among uh, people in need? I mean, we just talked about how uh, location actually matters. Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the I, I, I'm aware that there are two sites located in Chunmun, which are relatively close to the downtown, uh, the, the existing public rental housing uh, area. I think those uh, sites may be attractive. But uh, as I said earlier, I'm not saying that the uh, those who are uh, which are in remote areas are are, are okay. I, I just say that if just happened that there is no not enough uh, land, and those lands available for this kind of transitional housing or light public rental housing, if these are the sites that we, then we can, we have to think about other strategies to, to enhance the interest and to enhance the support for the tenants. So as to make those sites and, you know, housing units more attractive to those people. Okay. Is, I think uh, 
at the moment, uh, at, if you look at those sites being identified, of course, you would say that, well, these are so remote. Uh, how, how we could, I, I think a lot of people not even know where is uh, Lin Tong, for example. Mm. Where is Lin Tong? We don't understand the way. way. So, so I think uh, there are a lot of more effort to uh, publicize this uh, housing and, of course, enhance the facilities, community facilities there. And uh, is your organization interested in operating any of them? Uh, no, because uh, the Hong Kong Council of Service is an umbrella organization of NGOs. We are not providing direct service. At the moment, most of the transitional housing projects are actually operated by by uh, NGOs providing direct service to people. So we are sort of assisting or, you know, doing, you know, some coordination work among NGOs more. So we, 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 I think we... Certainly, we will not be operating, and we have never operated any uh, housing project. We just identify NGOs and working together with them to, to provide service to the tenants. All right. And uh, it, it just very, very briefly, in future, I mean, what advice do you have for the government when it comes to transitional housing? Do you think they should uh, just uh, try to allocate a piece of land that's uh, closer to the city? Uh uh, we have uh, quite a number of occasions on which we talk with the government officials, right? like providing more support to the uh, to the NGOs, because what we've been uh, advocating is the kind of transitional social housing, by which we mean how we can, you know, enhance socially the social network and mutual help among tenants. Because, like in like public rental housing, we already understand that there may not be as much. All right, Mr. Wong, unfortunately, we're out of time. I will have to leave it here. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's Anthony Wong, the Business Director of the Hong Kong Council of Social Service. And we'll continue our discussion in three minutes' time. Now, here's the weather. Sunny during the day, becoming cloudy later with one or two rain patches. And uh, temperatures will fall appreciably from around 24 degrees to a low of around 15 degrees. And right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 25 degrees, relative humidity 82%. RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Andrew Work and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Dr. Ma Hock Chung, the CEO of Park Oi Hospital Board Office. And on the line, we have Jenny Cho from the Society for Community Organization, who runs the Yingwa Street Transitional Housing Project in Shamsho Po. Now, if you have any comments or questions for our guests today, you can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call at 233-88266. Now, in the first half of the program, we focus on transitional housing. Now I just want to um, talk a bit about the uh, government's plan to build light public housing and uh, the reason why I'm asking it. this is because the government revealed um, yesterday that four plots of land in Tunmun, Fanling and Shengshou have been selected for these uh, prefabricated units. Um, first of all, Dr. Ma, what do you think of these locations? Sounds also quite, quite remote to me. Yeah, although I, I learned from Ms. Anthony Wong that two of the sites in Tunmun uh, are close to the public housing estates. Yeah. For the other two, I think they are quite remote. Yes. I think uh, right now, uh, from the information I've got here, it says uh, some of them they will be uh, located next to Castle Peak Hospital and Yantin Estate in Tun Moon and also Fairview Park and Fanling Golf Course. Yes, so so it is it is still quite far for some of these families, right, Dr. Ma? Um, would you be interested, I mean, would your hospital be interested in uh, operating any of these? 
uh, it is our mission to help the people of Hong Kong uh, to lead a better life. So if, say, uh, there's a call from the government or the invitation uh, to us, then uh, we are very willing to participate. Yes. Right. Okay. And uh, Ms. Cho? Um, hello, Ms. Cho. Do, do you think these uh, light public uh, housing will be popular? I mean, since they're located in uh, quite uh, remote areas, uh, as uh, Dr. Ma suggested? I would say uh, because uh, the two locations are quite close to the Chengqing estate, uh, which are a bit more popular for our residents, but only for one to two person family. But for a family with, with kids, they still refuse to change their uh, permanent housing location to accept the offer. So uh, for these two locations, I think before doing the construction, the government may plan or to change their mind to see if there is a need to fine-tune the number and also the types of housing to be built. But uh, for the other two, I think it's very, very remote for the family, so I'm quite afraid of the, the occupancy rate will be very low at that time. Mm. You know, we heard earlier that there are certain categories of people that aren't included, uh, like refugees. You, you have to be a permanent resident uh, in Hong Kong, so they're, they're off the list. Um, do people have to come from a traditional family structure to be able to sign up for these? So, for example, uh, you know, could gay couples apply for this housing or transitional housing? Uh, maybe if it's a couple taking care of an elderly person as opposed to, you know, a couple taking care of kids. Are, the, are these groups allowed to apply as well or are they yes. excluded? Yes, there are some special uh, provisions mm. for this kind of, uh, well, special uh, households, yes. Mm. Uh, the, the problem is actually is about the size of the units. Right. You have to confine the size of the unit to the number of people that are applying. So you cannot say let out uh, a three to four people unit to a a couple, sure, or to a single singleton applying for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, so for example, uh, let's say you've got a man taking care of his elderly mother. You know, I've seen the layouts. It, it would be very difficult to set up two sets of beds in, in uh, one of those flats. I mean, uh, do they accommodate those? If, types of things? if there if there's such a need, uh, yeah. we would be uh, willing to help and apply to the government for uh, uh, flexibility, allowing them to occupy the three to four person unit. Okay, and how about how about gay couples? Are they are they allowed to apply as a couple, or is it, be, or, is, or because they don't they're not eligible for public housing because they can't get married, they can't get into the transitional housing? I, I to my best to the best of my knowledge, we have not encountered this kind of applicants. Yes, okay. uh, well, if, if somehow there is such a case, I think we have to discuss with the government yeah, whether this is allowable. Yeah. All right, I, I have a. Well, I have a caller who left a message for us. Uh, he's called Ed, and uh, he has this comment. Maybe uh, Dr. Ma, you can uh, respond to it. Um, he says, for the rest of the world, transitional housing is used to help the homeless or uh, drug abusers, helping them get back on their feet. But in Hong Kong, we use high-quality land to build low-quality housing, such uh, and he goes, uh, this, uh, further uh, that further reduces uh, housing supply. Um, what's your comment on that, Dr. Ma? I, I would not like to comment on the quality issue because well, to me, I think uh, the Gonghao uh, village we are having is of a reasonable quality and also the environment is quite decent. Yeah. Uh, well, if you are talking about the purpose of this kind of transitional housing, we have to refer back to the original plan of the government because it is actually the time when people are talking about a long waiting time 
for those applying for the public rental housing. And uh, the more of them are actually beyond the promise or the, the pledge offered by the government. So the government want to have a quick fix. So they think of this uh, uh, transitional housing. Take a day, those who have been waiting for more than three years. Yes. So it, this it, original purpose. It, it solves a little bit of a political problem that Henderson Land has as well, doesn't it? I mean, uh, the big some of the, there, these groups are being uh, accused of having large land banks that are not being re, that are not being used for housing, and they don't want to give up those land banks. But if they give it out on a temporary basis to serve something like transitional housing, even though the location is not ideal, it kind of helps their <laughs> their political messaging, doesn't it? I I would I would not like to speculate on 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 the on the reason behind why Henderson is willing to say let out the the, the piece of land to us. I think yeah. they are, they're out of goodwill. I think yes, yeah. yeah. And also, uh, after all, they have not been very strict saying that. Oh, after this many number of years, we're going to take it back. They're still quite open. Yeah. So mm. so I, I would not speculate on the right. on uh, the purpose. Yes. All right. I just I want to go to Miss um, Choi, Miss Choi. Hi, just just before the news, uh, we're, we're talking about, I mean, Mr. Wong uh, who was talking about how um, more should be done to reach out to uh, people who are not connected to uh, any NGOs. Um, can you talk a bit about that? I mean, has uh, SOCO been trying to do that? Um, I would say uh, we need a connection between different NGOs. So uh, we try to organize our residents to conduct some uh, field visits uh, before the housing was uh, built and then introduce different types of projects uh, to our uh, residents. They are quite interested in looking into the layout design and the community facility and how big the units are. So they are quite interested in knowing more information. So what we can do will be to connect the NGOs and then uh, get more information. But I, I would say it is quite difficult and uneasy for us to contact one by one. For example, somehow, uh, if I would like to go to the hospital, but maybe I'm I'm unable to reach them, then I would uh, I'll need the help of uh, HKCSS for doing the connection. So I think their role is quite important in connecting different NGOs, and I believe this one could try to because we mainly work to serve uh, underprivileged family living in the uh, community. So, but we are unable to connect different uh, NGOs. So for uh, HKCSS, there will be another role for them. All right. And uh, Dr. Ma, do you want to respond to that? Is it difficult to contact different NGOs to talk about transitional housing? Uh, well, of course, there, there's a need for better coordinated work uh, in uh, organizing this kind of uh, uh, collaborated force uh, to help those uh, uh, needy. Uh, as, as uh, Ms. Choi has just mentioned, I think uh, the Hong Kong Council of Social Service actually can play this kind of a coordinator. Yeah, so uh, maybe uh, with all our, 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 our peer organizations, we can do a better job by having a better coordination, yes. Mm. Actually, Jenny, we haven't uh, tapped too much of your expertise because you are also responsible for the Yingwa Street Transitional Housing in Shamshepo, right? How long did it take you to fill up that facility when it opened? I mean, to get to get to you know eighty five, ninety percent capacity. Uh, I think we we spent three months in filling all six, filling all units full. But uh, our occupancy are quite stable. For the previous six months, it's one hundred percent because the unit we offer is just one hundred and forty. One hundred and forty square feet. No. Or one hundred and forty units. 
140 units. Okay. How, how, now you're quite in the heart of the city, right? So it's a very different situation, but um, how long, what's the average time for somebody to stay there and then transition out? I think uh, in the previous month, I, uh, we got just 10 to 15 family move out. So I think the majority of them uh, wait for public rental house for more than six years. So I expect they will stay for one to two years before moving out. Okay, so you, you expect it, but you don't have hard, as you said, it sounds like you just opened up recently, so they haven't, uh, you, you haven't been in opera, have you been in operation for more than one or two years? Sir, I bet you have it. How, how long has the Yingwa Street project been opened? Uh, we start our recruitment from uh, January of this year. Oh, so you're also a very new operation, so you haven't got yes. hard, hard data yet on how long people are going to stay. Yes. You're still guessing. I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're still new, right? So it'll take a while before you get a sense of how long people move, move in and out. Um, yeah. So I mean, Doctor Doctor Ma, did you, have you visited some of the other transitional housing projects to see what you can learn from them? Oh well, yes, I, I have been, uh, visited a few of them. Yes. Well, we we are quite uh, envious of their location actually, yeah, like Yingwa yeah. Street or the Lamcheng Tutuo, etc. Yeah. yeah, because they are really at the heart of the city. Yeah. 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 So probably I think they they would have a very small problem regarding uh, recruitment uh, mm. of the tenants, yes. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, we also have our advantages. Uh, yeah. We are very spacious, we have a lot of uh, 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 facilities uh, supporting the uh, livelihood of our uh, tenants. Uh, so, so we have different, well, kind of uh, provisions, yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, for the time, uh, every time for the tenants to move out, it, it varies and it depends on the willingness of the tenants to take up offers from the public housing yeah. authority, yeah, because some are very picky, so mm. they may stay longer because they, oh, this is not my what, what I want, yes. So, but um, we do uh, see quite a few families moving out from Hong Kong, yeah, yeah, after they have uh, been granted, uh, say, a permanent uh, type of uh, public rental housing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I mean, I've seen the uh, the website. It looks it looks very nice. I mean, if you like village life, it seems like quite a pleasant place to live. Yes. Yeah. Right. And uh, I mean, earlier, Dr. Ma, you're talking about how transitional housing is really um, to help uh, people who've been waiting for public housing for a long time or people who live in subdivided units. Um, And now the uh, public, the waiting time, the average waiting time for public housing has gone down to 5.6 years. Um, What do you see as uh, the uh, future for transitional housing? I mean, in the long in the long run? Well, since it is transitional, we we are not thinking in the long run uh, as such. So I think well the the, the 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 time frame for our operation is about five to six years after we start moving in uh, people. Yeah. So so we are not talking about ten or twenty years. Yes. Uh, I think uh, it maybe is our just our mission to help people getting a better accommodation. And if say the need has actually uh, uh, gone to such a state that is no longer needed. And I think, well, we just serve our purpose. Yeah. So uh, we, 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 of course, if there's a need, we, con- we are willing to continually running them. Yeah. It all depends on the situation. And also I know the government has been trying hard to solve this uh, uh, housing problem for the people of Hong Kong. So as you mentioned, this uh, light public housing uh, concept, etc. So but we, we will see how we can collaborate with the government to help the people of Hong Kong. And they're willing to participate in whatever 
kind of maneuvers that we can be helpful. Yeah. Okay. All right, uh, Dr. Ma, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Dr. Ma Hock Chung, the CEO of Hot Oil Hospital Board Office. And also many thanks to Jenny Cho from the Society for Community Organization, who runs the Yingwa Street Transitional Housing Project in Shamshou Po. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. It's now 16 minutes past nine and it's time to move on to our next topic. And it's about a new wedding spending survey by the e-commerce website ESD Life on more than a thousand people who plan to get married between this year and 2024. And to discuss some of the findings with us, we're now joined on the line by Valentina Tudos, a dating and relationships coach. Good morning and thanks for joining us on the program. Good morning. Um, now, according to the survey, almost half of the brides-to-be want to be proposed to with a diamond ring of at least one carat, while 56% said they would reject a proposal without a diamond ring. Um, what's your take on this finding? Well, I think people who want to invest in a marriage, they see a diamond ring as a proof of commitment. And... Um, I think culturally we've all been educated to believe that uh, our value has to be as high as possible. So when someone proposes to us, I think the, the size of the diamond uh, is the, the actual proof of that commitment. But of course, um, I would also say that uh, the idea of a diamond being a girl's best friend has been um, planted in our culture for, for a long time. So it's it's a lot more than just a sign of love. I think it's also the sign of commitment and investment, uh, like if you like, energy that people put in their relationship. Uh, the planting of that commitment was a deliberate move. I think a lot of people know this history by the De Beers company. Their, their marketing department came up with this as a way to sell more diamonds, uh, and uh, particularly in North America, where the original uh, they, they originally sold it and, and kind of suggested that people should the, a man should spend a month of his salary on the diamond, and that that you know, inflated over time to two months of his salary, three months of his salary. Um, but I mean, it, it's strange that De Beers still has that hold on us 100 years later. Well, it's a monopoly on the business, right? <laughs> and this this uh, idea has obviously been perpetuated by culture and the way we see uh, a wedding as a, as a merging of two families. And um, I was actually surprised in the in the survey to see this idea of betrothal money. I didn't know this was still a thing. In in Hong Kong culture, you didn't know that people were still yes. doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I didn't. I wasn't actually aware that people are supposed to to pay money to get a wife, but um, it is still obviously the case. Hmm. Right. I just want to go back to uh, the finding where, it's, where it says uh, 56% of uh, the uh, prize, brides-to-be uh, said they would reject a proposal without a diamond ring. Is it uh, just happening in Hong Kong or, or have you, or do you know if it's, um, it's the same situation in other places? I've not heard that people would reject the proposal. Um, but again, culturally, um, there is an expectation, I think, and not just in Hong Kong. I feel that as Andrew was saying, uh, the Beers company has been extremely successful in creating this expectation uh, that comes with the idea of marriage. I don't think a diamond ring is the only expectation that comes prepackaged, if you like, with the idea of marriage. Um, but, you know, even this survey is, in my opinion, uh, continuing this trend that people all have to 
to uh, spend or invest a certain amount of money in their wedding. Mm. So I don't know whether this is a bit of a vicious cycle that we're in here right now. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at some data from a couple of years ago, and admittedly from North America, um, where it said a lot of millennials now in particular, uh, they don't view the traditional proposal by a man with a diamond ring to be the be-all and end-all because they were more collaborative in their way that they planned out to making the commitment of a marriage. So there, there wouldn't be a surprise move with the diamond ring necessarily. And they were more into experiences over things. So they would rather spend the money on a honeymoon or, you know, the, the wedding, you know, kind of an exotic wedding followed by a honeymoon rather than pe- spend it on a piece of stone. Are you, are you picking up on that vibe as well? I mean, 44% of the people said they would be okay with a marriage proposal with no diamond. Yeah. I think outside of Hong Kong, um, this is not as much of an expectation. And you rightly said in, in this age group of millennials, people are much more focused on a collaborative approach to marriage. There is not necessarily an expectation that one or the other of the of the partners would have to cover the expenses of the wedding. And especially, I think, after the pandemic, a lot of these uh, traditional mindsets have changed a little bit because there's been so much difficulty on organizing a traditional wedding. So people focused more on what was available to them, and I think that has helped to to shift away from this uh, preset, um, you know, list of expectations that was included in the traditional wedding. I have had cases with the inter international couples, let's say a Western person marrying a Chinese person, where they've clashed over these expectations, you know, big weddings, uh, destination weddings, which may not have been what the expectation of the Western partner was, um, but they got resolved once they understood the cultural differences and the meaning of these big events in, in the partner's life. So, so the, the connection between money and meaning needs to be clarified when you're in the process of planning one of these. I agree, yes. Um, the, the case that I'm, I'm thinking of was um, like a Western male partner marrying a, a female partner, and they didn't really know each other very well, and the Western male partner didn't really know the Chinese culture very well or the Asian culture in general. So there was uh, a big shock when uh, they heard the amount of money that was needed for two different wedding receptions and the number of guests and so on. So that caused a little bit of pre-wedding um, disagreement, but fortunately they all got resolved with a little bit of understanding of, as you said, meaning. What? Why do we have to have X, Y, Z on the list? And why do we have to have two weddings? And why do we have to invite so many people? Because I think this concept of a marriage in front of lots of people has changed a lot in in the Western society. People don't really care so much about impressing, um, you know, the the broader community. But it's much more about the couple and their close friends. And uh, what do you think? What sort of impact do you think uh, the COVID pandemic has had on on uh, this kind of thinking about uh, relationships and weddings? I think it's brought people to be a little bit more realistic, if you like, or much more practical. I think a lot of the the wedding culture before was very much about making a big splash, showing everyone what a happy couple we are and, you know, uh, 
creating it as, as a big event in people's lives. I think obviously the pandemic has brought these big dreams uh, to a halt because people have had to postpone their wedding celebrations and so on. And I think a lot of, uh, at least people I know, have lost patience with all the different restrictions and decided to just go on and do smaller ceremonies and still um, tie the knot, so to speak, without that um, social aspect playing as important a role as they used to, to play. All right, so we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Valentina Tudos, a dating and relationship coach. It's now coming up to 25 minutes past nine, and it's time for our World Cup Roundup. Good morning, Atom. So the United States are through to the last 16 together with group winner England. And uh, I mean, and uh, let's have a look at the match between the US and Iran. The Iranians, uh, they, they really didn't make it easy for the Americans, right? No, no, they didn't. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start because, uh, like you said, the US qualified behind England in Group B by beating Iran 1-0. Uh, thanks to uh, Christian Pulisic, who scored in the first half, uh, but then he injured himself after he scored. I mean, he, he crashed into the Iranian goalie, and I saw him holding his thigh. Mm. So he could be dealt for the next game. But still, the Americans came away with the win. Iran made this hard because uh, they had a lot of chances in added time. The referee gave 10 minutes of added time in this game. They had quality chances, and two times they appealed for a penalty, and they didn't get it. So the Americans go through. Uh, also, another great story is Senegal. They made it into the last 16 uh, for the first time since 2002. They defeated uh, Ecuador on a goal from their captain, Kalidou Koulibaly. Uh, so Ecuador is out. Uh, the sad thing is that winning goal by Senegal actually bounced off the foot of their captain, Enner Valencia, oh. who scored all three of their goals in the first two games. And this was probably his last World Cup game. Uh, also, England beat Wales 3-0. That was easy, piece of cake for England. Yep. And uh, the Netherlands uh, went through as group winners as I had expected them to. They got another goal from Cody Gakpo, uh, his third goal in three games. Okay. Uh, anybody else we're checking up on? Portugal, Uruguay? Oh, yeah. They, they play a, a lot later. Uh, Portugal, they're, they're well-placed. They're, they're first in the group. Mm -hmm. So uh, that will uh, go on a little later. But tonight's focus really is on Argentina. We're watching Lino Messi. Uh, to see if he can take uh, Argentina into the next round. Uh, they are playing Poland, so we've got two superstars to watch here. Messi, of course, mm -hmm. and also Robert Lewandowski, the uh, Barcelona striker of Poland. All right. Uh, Saudi Arabia, we're expecting another upset from them over Mexico? Or are they, are they going to continue their upsetting ways? I mean, they, they've, they've got their big upset, then they lost one. I mean, yeah. yeah. I think they'll be motivated because Saudi Arabia can actually control their destiny. If they beat Mexico, they're through. Mexico is a very different style from the other two teams in this group. Uh, the Mexicans were very physical against Argentina. So I don't know how Saudi Arabia can match up with that. And on that note also, I think Argentina are a bit banged up. 
So it could be tricky for them in this match against Poland, especially on defense. Because uh, as I said, you know, they've got Robert Lewandowski, a Poland there, famous striker, a mm-hmm. goal machine. Yeah. So they're going to need the defenders to be really strong, including guys like Christ, uh, Christian Romero and uh, Lisandro Martinez. Uh, Romero didn't start the last game, but I expect him to get more playing time tonight. Okay. Right. And what about the game, the match between uh, Australia and Denmark? When is that going to happen? Yeah, so that's also happening tonight. So in that group, France is top. They've already clinched a place in the knockout stage, but they're going to to look to win the group, finish first. They're up against Tunisia. Australia and Denmark will play for the other last 16 plays from that group. A win, the, the, whoever wins this game will go through, definitely. Mm. This one is hard to say because Denmark have only managed one goal in their first two games. Australia, only two. So this could be very low scoring. But the interesting thing is Denmark is supposed to be the better team. They've actually had more ball possession against France and against Tunisia, but couldn't win and only managed one goal. None of their forwards have scored so far. Did they have striking opportunities? Were they just unlucky? or I, I think they just weren't as aggressive when they're in the box, and they're just missing a little bit of quality up front. Mm. They've got Christian Eriksen, who's very good at setting up guys, but we need someone to step up as that the guy who can put that ball in the net. So who knows? I mean, they do have... have um, Quality guys up front, guys like Yusef Polson, who plays on Leipzig, uh, a veteran, Martin Brathway, who, who used to play for Barcelona, now mm-hmm. with es- Espanyol. Yeah. We'll see if those guys can step up for Denmark. All right, Atom. Unfortunately, that's uh, all we have time for this morning. Thanks again for your update. And uh, that's uh, RTHK sports correspondent Adam Chung. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today. And of course, to you, Andrew and Yuki, our producer. And uh, now here's the weather. Uh, sunny, mainly sunny during the day, becoming cloudy with one or two rain patches later. Temperatures will fall appreciably um, from high of high of around at 25 degrees to around 15 degrees later tonight and right now the temperature is 25 degrees relative humidity 83% I'm Dr. Emma Nam the pandemic is surging with more contagious mutant strains the elderly are at the highest risk if a new wave comes scientific data shows that those with stable health can receive COVID-19 vaccines take your elderly relatives to get the jab at community vaccination centers designated general outpatient clinics elderly health centers, private clinics, or hospital COVID-19 vaccination stations, or opt for the home vaccination service. It's 9.30, the news with Todd Harding. The nation's latest manned space mission has blasted off with three Taikonauts bound for the Tiangong space station. The space station will be handed over to them within a week by the three Taikonauts who arrived at the station in early June. Police have launched a murder investigation after a 64-year-old man was found fatally stabbed in a pool of his own blood at a building in Mong Kok. Police have been called to Hoi Fu Court shortly after 6 o'clock after being alerted by neighbours to someone calling for help. And NATO says it will help Ukraine fix down.